This is Reset. I'm Natalie Moore in for Sasha and Simons. It's Friday at noon, so it's time for the weekly news recap. Our City deep le- dive into the biggest state and local stories of the week. City leaders are looking to convert Lincoln Square's Diplomat Hotel into temporary housing for homeless Chicagoans. Lightfoot was in the front row at the Cook County Criminal Court building as 42-year-old William Colas appeared for today's status hearing. Prosecutors say that he sent her an email last fall where he threatened to kill Lightfoot. The Cook County State's Attorney released a list of police officers who will not be called to testify in criminal cases because of investigations and allegations against the officers. Ramirez Rosa says currently restaurant workers get 60% of the full minimum wage. The proposal is to phase the ordinance in over a two-year period to give restaurants the chance to financially prepare. And we have a wonderful panel today to give us the scoop. With us is Amy Guth host of Crane's Chicago Business Podcast, Daily Gist. Welcome back to Reset, Amy. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Also with us is Alice Alex Nicken, reporter with the Illinois Answers Project for the Better Government Association. Hey, Alex. Hey, thanks for having me. And rounding out the panel is WBEZ criminal justice editor, Patrick Smith. Hey, Patrick. Hey, Natalie. Okay, our esteemed alders were busy at Chicago City Council this week before taking their summer break. Alex, let's start with efforts to increase what's been called a sub-minimum wage for tipped workers. Right. This is something that has emerged as really one of the first big sort of media policy items that the Johnson administration, Brandon, Brandon Johnson uh, administration, is trying to um, tackle. This is something that folks may remember that Um, The minimum wage, there were two big legislative efforts over the past decade or so to raise the minimum wage in the city of Chicago, first under Mayor Rahm Emanuel to raise it to $13 an hour, and then Mayor Lori Lightfoot, that was sort of her big thing when she came in, to raise it eventually up to $15 an hour. But there was a big carve-out that would, at at the request of the behest of the restaurant industry, they wanted to still be able to... Um, have a policy that's called tipped minimum wage where they can set their own actual minimum wage at something like $5 an hour under the assumption that tips are going to make up the difference. And that was sort of an open wound in that discussion that was really championed and has continued to be vocalized as an issue by restaurant workers and folks um, in labor. And so now that Johnson has come in, there has been a lot of momentum building um, and coalitions have been forming to really start to push that across. And we saw it proposed in the form of legislation by uh, carried by freshman older person um, Jesse Fuentes in the 26th Ward. I think that caught a lot of people's attention, that it's this big um, legislative effort being um, carried by a, a new older person. But um, it was introduced. It kicked off the discussion. It was one of these big new, it, it, definitely one of the big items that we're going to see discussed in the fall after the alders come back from the August recess. But it was sort of sidetracked. It was sent to the Rules Committee, the sort of um, delay tactic by um, Alderman Anthony Beal. And it was really just a reminder that this is still going to face really huge pushback from um, mainly the restaurant industry, which we know is is very powerful in the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. And so that'll be one to watch in the fall. Any thoughts on why uh, a new alder would be introducing this? You know, I think that it's clearly supported by a number of alders. You know, Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who is more of a a veteran and Brandon Johnson's floor leader, is very vocal and behind it. Um, I think that uh, Alderperson Fuentes is, I think that it speaks to, if anything, a lot of these younger and freshman alders are really 
stepping forward and trying to be prominent voices on policy. I mean, we saw that from we we're probably going to talk about some police misconduct settlements where freshman alderman Bill Conway sort of gave up and said, here's why I'm voting against this settlement. I think it really reflects a new way of, you know, action in the city council that where typically the mandate for the youngest and newest alders is sort of keep your head down and vote with the mayor. And now they're proving to be a lot more independent and policy minded. And this is an example. City Council also debated the high cost to taxpayers of police misconduct. Patrick, can you give us an update on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is is something that Alice was just alluding to, which is like something that almost never happens, which is that by a narrow vote, uh, the city council rejected a settlement agreement that was recommended by the finance, by the finance committee, by the city's attorneys, by the mayor's office. Um, usually the, the city council, by, by the time it gets to this point, when, when, when uh, city attorneys come before the city council and say, hey, we've got a settlement agreement, we think it's the best fiscal decision, usually the city council is a rubber, rubber stamp for those sorts of decisions. In this case, um, it was a settlement for uh, the city was recommend the city council, the city lawyers, excuse me, were recommending that the city pay $2 million to the family of a man who was killed by Chicago police in 2014. I want to say his name. The man killed was 21-year-old Darius Cole Garrett. Uh, at the time when that shooting happened in 2014, police said that Cole Garrett pointed a gun at them. They said that a gun was recovered after the shooting. Uh, so there's there's this. So uh, despite that, the uh, the city was recommending that we settle this lawsuit for two million dollars. Usually, as I said, the city council just approves that no matter what. This time, all the all the people uh, rejected that by by a, a close margin. I think one of the reasons that was cited, and Alex, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, was that the Independent Police Review Authority, which was at the time the body that investigated police shootings, they had found the shooting justified. Uh, I I think it's important to note, though, uh, put some context on that, which is that, you know, one of the reasons that we don't have IPRA anymore and we have the Civilian Office of Police Accountability is that the former agency that investigated police shootings – they pretty much every single time found shootings justified. Right. So I didn't report on this this shooting when it happened. I can't say more than what we know from from sort of the reporting and what the uh, what the city attorney said. But I don't think just the fact that this was found justified means that that it was a bad idea to settle the lawsuit. I can't say that one way or another. And also, I think it's worth pointing out that this is a fiscal decision. By the time it gets here, the the the, bal- the, the balance that's supposed to be struck is what's going to save taxpayers the most money. City attorneys believe that this settlement was going to be cheaper than going to trial and losing, which they must think is at least a, a pretty high probability or they wouldn't recommend $2 million. So they uh, the city council rejected that. I- I'm curious to see what's going to happen next. We should probably shout out a lot of that reporting was done by WBEZ's Chip Mitchell. I would uh, have... <laughs> urge people to go back and look through that, and maybe um, the folks in the city council can read through some of Chip's reporting when trying to understand how much credibility IPRA has or had on issues like that. I don't know if it's too early to know, but do we have a sense if the family is going to continue to seek financial justice? So I haven't spoken with the family, but what I would assume happens here is either we go to trial or... In a couple months, they come back and say, hey, remember when we recommended a settlement? We recommend it again, and then they'll approve it that time. It's kind of yeah. like- This has happened before. There was a, a case, um, a settlement that was rejected um, a couple of years ago, and basically what the, the, the recommendation was for something like a $250,000 settlement, and then 
what eventually they just go back to the negotiating table. What happens to the city attorneys and the, the family's attorneys? And in that case, what happened is that they just lowered their um, settlement amount to one hundred thousand dollars so that it wouldn't have to go through the city council again, because one hundred and one hundred thousand and one dollars is the threshold for going through the city council. Amy. Turning to Logan Square, the Congress Theater might be reopening again after a decade of being shuttered. What's the latest? Yeah, so uh, a $27 million amount has been approved for the $88 million proposal. Uh, La Spada was kind of touting that as, as you know, the, I think he called it like the number one thing people are mm-hmm. always asking about what's going on with the Congress. It's been closed since 2013. I mean, I was kind of reflecting on that, uh, knowing we were going to talk about it today. And I remember seeing the last thing I, the last thing I think I saw there was Morrissey years ago mm-hmm. before it closed. And even then, I remember thinking, how is this building not condemned? It was falling yeah. apart. Like, there yeah. were huge chunks of just building laying in the, like, laying on the ground on the edges of the area. And it was just kind of this big open area, right? There wasn't really seating on the ground floor. Um, so I think that's interesting to see that moving forward. And and we'll see. I mean, what the, the question in my mind, of course, will be like the timeline, because that can get really caught up, especially when it's, you know, city-approved funds and all that. That can that can take its time and, and you know, that all the red tape attached to that. But, you know, here's this beautiful space. It was built in 1926 as a movie theater, and then it became this music venue. And it's really this ornate, grand building. And it's such such a gem in in Logan Square is such a, you know, such a standout. So I think it's interesting and, and cool to see it kind of uh, maybe moving towards coming back to life. Yeah, I remember seeing uh, Bone Thugs at Congress <laughs> Theater. <laughs> nice. and it, was, it was very run down, but also you could see the the potential, I think it's worth pointing out, I don't remember all the details, but there's a really excellent reporter at Block Club Chicago who has tracked all the different yeah. sort of, uh, uh, that's a little bit of a joke, the yeah, reporter is uh, my wife. Uh, Sorry. Would, would that be me? <laughs> uh, but there have, there have been uh, funds approved for the Congress Theater before, yeah. and then the project didn't end up happening because of, uh, you know, because of the developer and other problems there. So right. I don't think the city money was spent previously, but this is another yeah. attempt at this. Interestingly, what they did to lay the groundwork for this was actually extend the life on the Fullerton Milwaukee Tax Increment Finance district, a TIF district in the area, one of the things that Alderman Laspada said was, this doesn't need more money, it just needs more time. Yeah. And so they extended the life on that TIF district. What, um, you know, city finance nerds like me are going to be doing is watching <laughs> to see if that opens the door for them to dip back into that piggy bank to pay for other things, too. Mm. Alex, City Council also approved the purchase of a hotel in Lincoln Square. Yeah, this was the Diplomat Motel. Um, if you have driven in Lincoln Square up along, um, you know, Lincoln Avenue north of Foster, you have seen probably this this row of kind of, um, I'll say, you know, vintage, to put it generously, um, <laughs> motels. And this has really been a concern of the local elder, um, Andre Vasquez of the 40th Ward, who's, who's been trying to either get them you know, small business improvement funds to spruce themselves up or to make some use of them. And so this is, he has really, I think to his credit, heralded this as like a a novel kind of um, uh, uh, vehicle to really um, not only reactivate a, a kind of building that may have been struggling, but also to turn it into um, congregate housing for uh, uh, shelters. Um, th- this actually... Um, yeah, to transitional housing is uh, is is the way that it's being labeled. Um, Two hundred. The city is going to spend two point nine million dollars to turn this four hundred forty six room motel into forty rooms of supportive housing. Um, interestingly, this was sort of a continuation of the same policy that the city's Department of Family and Support Services had developed under COVID, which was sort of another one of these shocks, like the migrant crisis, that has forced the city to really reconsider its old model of just big congregate housing. 
um, shelters. And so this, you know, hopefully I think the aldermen in the city hope will be a model for um, helping to create a wider spectrum and more varied and creative kind of approach to, you know, building that path out of um, out of homelessness for people who are experiencing it. Um, a big question is whether the city will have funds for it and whether it brings Chicago home passes, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Closing out city council, Alder stepped up to save some city signs. What's that? Yeah, so... Uh, Folks might know that there is a provision in city, you know, government and the city council where they can designate certain buildings or even districts as landmarks to say, if anyone wants to modify or demolish this building because we regard it as such an architectural treasure, you're going to have to go through extra barriers basically to protect those buildings. What Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa and the the Johnson administration jointly developed um, and put through in this uh, city council was sort of expanding that policy to apply to vintage signs. So basically a a landmark designation for um, signs. The apparently motivation for this was the Grace's Furniture sign in Logan Square. Um, Of course, I'm reading uh, Mina Bloom's coverage. We all love (laughs) Mina Bloom Um, at uh, at Block Club. Um, And you know, basically, we all know in our neighborhoods, there's like a, a cool old vintage sign. Now there is a, a measure to protect it. Unfortunately, this was not passed in enough time to save the um, Orange Garden Chop Suey sign in Lincoln Square, which was was one of my favorites. But just an interesting little, um, you know, extra feature of, of city government that's been created. Does anybody here have some signs that they hope are protected by this? Anything I mean, come to I, mind? I've always said that that one of us should just just jump on that and document all of them before mm-hmm. they all go away. And I, I had that thought right before that chop suey sign went down at, at Irving Park. Um, I think there's so many beautiful ones, even some that are, you know, pretty utilitarian that aren't necessarily like a restaurant or something like that. There's a lot of even like furniture store ones, but that just have and some of the motels even and that that strip that have just these very cool vintage signs that that really are, are worthy of preservation and and some degree of documentation about what's the story behind them? Who's that person that put that up in the same way that we see the uh, carved above kind of the mantle of doors on mm-hmm. buildings you'll see a condo building but the facade was something else and it's like an orphanage or something mm-hmm. and yeah. that's a kind of a cool backstory to those and i think we should preserve those i think that's really an or interesting ghost endeavor. signs another example of oh, that oh yeah like faded yeah old signs definitely i love on the buildings. uh the lasalle flower sign that's, that's oh that's downtown. a great that one, one. That's really yeah cool. that's a good one the one that's gone that a lot of people may remember the magic kissed sign that was all over and there was one by my house on the Dan Ryan where I grew up um, around 83rd in the Dan Ryan and um, that off that image often pops up when people are doing vintage Chicago mm-hmm. um, memories. This is Reset. I'm Natalie Moore in for Sasha Ann Simons and this is the weekly news recap where we take you behind the headlines of the week's top local stories. Before the break, we took a deep dive into what happened in city council this week, but there's a lot more news to get to. Three days after reports of hazing happening inside the Northwestern University football program going back years, coach Pat Fitzgerald gets fired. Cheryl Evanston, residents and Northwestern alumni we spoke to said that this was not the kind of thing they ever expected from the Northwestern football program. The city of Waukegan has released video of the interrogation that led to a 15-year-old falsely confessing to a shooting last year. Illinois is now the first state in the nation to completely eliminate cash bail for defendants 
evidence awaiting trial. Our panel today to help break down these stories, Amy Guth, host of Crane's Chicago Business Podcast, Daily Gist, Alex Nitkin of Illinois Answers Project for the Better Government Association, and WBEZ criminal justice editor Patrick Smith. Patrick, Illinois will become the first state to eliminate cash bail. Uh, tell, tell us about the state Supreme Court's ruling this week. Yes, yeah, so, so the state Supreme Court uh, released their ruling on Tuesday. They were ruling on a case that was brought by a number of state's attorneys throughout the state who who had challenged the abolition of cash bail as unconstitutional. And the state Supreme Court ruled that it was not unconstitutional, that it is, in fact, in, fits with our, within our state constitution, which means uh, the abolition of cash bail is going to go forward. It's going to end on September 18th. Uh, I, I won't get too into the weeds of their sort of legal reasoning there, but but one thing they did say is they think that this law, as it was written and passed, uh, does properly balance the rights of crime victims and the rights of people accused of crimes. That was one of the things that was in the lawsuit. Again, I'm not going to get into all the all right. the other ones, but <laughs> the important thing is that cash bail is over in, in two months. And let's take a step back. How did this even get to the Supreme Court. Yes, yeah, so, so there was, as I mentioned, a number of states' attorneys uh, throughout Illinois who challenged this this abolition. I mean, essentially, or, so- I mean, I, I should say. Uh, how did they even challenge this? This was a law that was... Yes. So so yeah. the law was passed in 2021, the, the Safety Act, that included lots of different changes to try to make our justice system more fair and equitable. Uh, one of them was ending cash bail. That was immediately challenged. There was a lawsuit. A judge uh, in downstate Illinois said, yeah, this violates the Constitution, suspended it for some jurisdictions, the ones that, the ones that had sued. Then the state Supreme Court said, we're going to suspend this. Uh, for everybody until we rule on it. Uh, and so this was, I mean, this is a historic move for Illinois. It was, there was a lot of writing about it when it was passed. It's now been a couple of years since then. Illinois is going to be, is the first state in the country to get rid of cash bail. It means that judges will be making decisions about who is held in jail or released pre-trial. So these are people who are accused of crimes. They haven't been adjudicated yet. They're waiting to go to trial you know, they haven't been found guilty. Will they be held in jail while they await trial? Judges now will make the decision on whether or not they get released based on whether or not they're a threat to the public or a threat to flee. Money's not going to factor into it at all anymore. Uh, so it's going to be a, it's a it's a massive change for the system and for, for people accused of crimes. What are the problems and disparities that we have seen in our criminal justice system around cash bail? Well, I mean, the big problem is that if you're basing things around money, it means that people who have more of it, who maybe are more of a threat, are going to get out. I mean, you can you're essentially buying justice. You are buying your freedom, which then means that the people who are not able to do that are going to be locked up, even if. They're not actually a threat to anybody if they're they're not actually a threat to flee. And I'm, there have been studies that have been done uh, that show that people who are released, uh, you know, on their own recognizance, there's like a 90 percent chance that they're going to show back up for court. Like like there are studies that show that that the cash really doesn't factor into whether or not people are going to commit acts of violence when they're out or, or are going to not show up to their court dates, which is the idea with cash bail is sort of like you put the money up. That's that's what guarantees you'll keep coming back to court. I think we all probably are aware of how our society here is structured. Uh, the most of the poorest people in Cook County in the state of Illinois are people of color. So you you necessarily have a system that is jailing more people of color, even if they are accused of the same crime as a person who has more means and is able to buy their way out. Because someone in Cook County could be staying in jail before trial for 
years, right? Yeah, I mean, serious cases in Cook County um, take take yeah years. I mean, there are murder trials that don't don't go for five years, uh, three years. And one other thing that we're going to see, I mean, people are expecting there to be more trials now because. If you're accused of some relatively low-level crime or whatever crime it is, even if you say, hey, I didn't do this, if you're waiting in jail and you've been in jail for six months and your public defender or your attorney comes to you and says, listen, we should just plead guilty to this because your sentence is going to be six months and it'll be time served and you get to leave, people are, were, you know, the idea is that people were pleading guilty to crimes that maybe they would have otherwise fought in court because they wanted to get out of jail, which makes sense. But then you have a criminal record. Then you have pleaded guilty to some crime that maybe you think there's a reason. Maybe you were innocent of it or there's another reason that you want to contest the validity of it. So it's not just staying in jail pretrial. It's it's whether or not you get to fight your case properly. Uh, people are expecting we will see more cases go to trial now because you won't have that sort of cudgel of pretrial uh, imprisonment. I'm so glad that you brought that up because this, like so many other really contentious issues, really extreme narratives emerge really fast, right? And the opposition very quickly was like, oh, you're you know, going to be letting dangerous criminals out on the street. The end. Thanks. Mm. Bye. And, and so I think it's so important in times of really extreme narratives around something contentious to really unpack it very carefully. And, mm-hmm. and I think that part is so important to name that we will see more trials because of exactly what you said, that if you're sitting in jail and it's taking a very long time time you're like whatever it takes to get me out of here like I'm just done sure like you then but then also as you said right you have a criminal record that becomes an employment issue that becomes classist and you know all these other it becomes this domino issue and and so I think that's so very important to kind of unpack those little nuances to it that that um, that kind of stop those extreme narratives because okay yes I hear what you're trying to say but what about this the facts of it uh, what about the these issues that are undeniable here in the middle of this yeah and the proponents of this massive change you know they say this will actually be better for public safety yeah. because now you're only making decisions based on whether or not someone's a threat as opposed to whether or not they can come up with thirty thousand dollars or something like that or, or more or less I will say the opponents of this change the people who want to keep cash bail what they say is the standards are too high. I mean, for for instance, you have to be accused of a certain level of crime in order to be eligible to be held at all. Um, I, the DuPage County uh, State's Attorney Bob Berlin, I, I know, talked with our reporter Shannon Heffernan and said an example he gave was like, you have somebody who's charged with burglary, but when they arrested him, they found a kill list in his pocket. Uh, if he's only charged with burglary, you can't hold him pre-trial uh, just because you found that kill list because it doesn't fit the standard. Again, you're talking about extremes. That's probably an extreme example. I think the people on the other side would say, well, find a way to charge him with a serious crime if you think he's actually committing a serious crime, and and then we can go from there. Alex, do you think that Illinois could become a national model? Are other states looking at us? I think it is going to become a national model, for better or worse, in one way or the other. Everyone has their eyes on the state of Illinois. I think it's also worth bringing up that while Illinois is going to be the first state that will have completely gotten rid of um, cash bail and cash bond. There have been other states that have taken big steps in that direction um, that are worth studying. I mean, I, probably the, the biggest example is New Jersey, which eliminated cash bail in 2014 in something like 90 to 95% of cases. And the pretty clear result from that was sort of modest decarceration, modest, um, uh, uh, you know, low decreases in jail populations and not really any um, uh, legible impact on crime from that. Um, And that's pretty much the same um, 
result that has been seen not just in New Jersey, which was part of a bipartisan you know effort championed by Chris Christie at the time, but also in places like um, Alaska um, that have done put forward those kinds of policies. So yes, I think that as this you know rolls out after September 18th, there are going to be a lot of eyes on the state of Illinois, and I think. To your point, Amy, a, a lot of the um, challenge for advocates is going to be keeping attention on sort of aggregate data yeah. and big picture outcomes because right. there are going to be lots and lots and lots of individual horror stories along the way as there have been of, oh, here's one person who w- was released because of this law and they went on to commit some terrible crime, which is usually what, what we hear is the basis for the opposition. Yeah. It, it always becomes like a confirmation bias. Like, yes, I know this is what you are trying to say, but I saw this one example. Therefore yeah. all of this must be inaccurate. Right. I think that that's what we see so much and, and exactly right. It, it'll be maybe one very egregious example means, you know, that doesn't mean the whole thing is wrong mm-hmm. or that it's not working. And so exactly. I think really keeping a, uh, uh, not just tight tabs on the data resulting from it, but making sure that that information is well shared and that it's it's readily available and that it's cited when, you know, regularly saying, here's the progress report of this, here's the status of this. Because I think that's really what, you know, nothing's going to um, eliminate extreme narratives. If anyone knew how to do that, you know, they would have done it by now. But I think certainly that's one thing to apply to that wound of extreme narratives on on either side of any big story is to keep reminding people of the data points. Especially because every time that something like this has happened, I mean, certainly including here, but also in places like New York and New Jersey, there's been a huge backlash from people who cite crime data and say, oh, it's because of bail reform, so we need to roll that back. That is happening in a big way in New Jersey right now and in New York where there was sort of a less significant bail reform measure. And so... That kind of data tracking and that reporting is going to be really important. Patrick, can you tell us about our colleague Chip Mitchell's story about Waukegan police, a teenager, and a false confession? Yeah, let me sort of lay lay out where where we've been so far and and, and let people know what what the latest was. Uh, Last year, police in Waukegan, the north suburb, uh, they got a confession out of a 15-year-old that he had committed a shooting. He he, he confessed to a shooting of a a dollar store uh, worker. And they held him on, on in jail on charges including attempted murder. But then, while he was in jail, his basketball team proved that he was actually miles away at a basketball game in another suburb when the shooting took place. So he could not possibly have committed this this shooting that, that he confessed to and was charged with. So Chip's been digging into this uh, since then, essentially, and especially digging into, like, how could this have happened? Uh, Chip and WBEZ sued for video of the interrogation that—, that extracted this false confession out of the teenager. And I think what's really important and interesting about this case, I mean, what's most important is obviously the life and the well-being of, of this teenager uh, who was falsely imprisoned here. But but what's, what I think broad, even broader than that is you have a case where detectives were able to extract a false confession from a 15-year-old, um, but they didn't use sort of the methods that we might assume. It wasn't like a, you know, days-long interrogation where there was sleep deprivation. There wasn't physical abuse. They didn't threaten him or his family. They weren't yelling at him. The things that we sort of think about, 
Instead, what they did was, you know, Chip broke down the video with some experts, and what they did was was subtle. I mean, the main thing they did really was they lied to this teenager. They inflated the evidence that they had against him. They told him, you know, there's a chance you might get to go home if you sort of tell us what really happened here and admit that you did this, but explain why. Um, and, and I think it's a lesson. I, I hope that that other police departments look look at this as as what not to do because it it is easier than you might think. I mean, based on based on Chip's reporting to get a teenager to confess to something they couldn't possibly have done because they are their kids. They're susceptible to that kind of pressure, that kind of uh, misleading information. And, and uh, I think there's really important lessons to be learned. I, I'd, I'd recommend everybody go to WBEZ's website to see Chip's full reporting and watch, watch clips from the video. Okay, so the other big story of the week, lawsuits being filed by former Northwestern football players against the university over alleged hazing and abusive behavior. Uh, we heard from some uh, former players this week, and let's take a listen to what Lloyd Yates had to say. We just thought that this was, you know, part of being, um, you know, playing college football, playing Big Ten, and we wanted to, you know, be accepted. We wanted to fit in. We wanted to earn trust and respect, and if, you you know, you went against that, you were, you were an outcast, you were labeled, and um, it warranted further abuse. And I also want to hear from another player, Tom Carnifax. He was also at Wednesday's press conference. It's hard to explain to you guys what we went through. We know because we saw it for four years straight. The words we have to tell you and best describe it is not even touching a fraction of it. Amy, what are the players saying? You know, I, I think what the players are saying is very, very interesting. Some of it is very powerful. Lloyd Yates in particular is kind of emerging as kind of this leading voice of these former players. And, and that that's important to note that the, are, they are former players, not current players. Um, but, you know, he used some really powerful language at that at that press conference, including saying, you know, that it, that some of it became so, you know, the pressure was so high that some players commit, or, or contemplated suicide. I mean, that's a powerful word to use. Um, you know, that was kind of the first time we saw players and really heard from them. That's when we learned the new information that this perhaps extended beyond football to other sports programs. You know, uh, Cranes, uh, my colleague at Cranes, Brandon Dupre, has been doing so much reporting on this and really been doing such an awesome job with it because he's really, there's so many pieces of it. There's kind of the future of Ryan Field and what Evanstonians think. And there's this big call for transparency of, hey, not just, um, you know, what's going on with the sports department right now, but also what's up with all the events there? What's going on with funding? How's that going to work? There's questions for trustees. There's a lot of questions on Michael Schill right now. He has not been in the, the president role. Of, yes. the, of Northwestern, he, he new ha- president. The new, I was just going to say, he hasn't been in the role of president for long. And so there's kind of a lot of eyes on him, particularly because his initial reaction was to suspend coach Fitzgerald. And so there's a, there's a growing faculty call for a release of the investigation of what did you know when? And I think that's really the big thing I'm waiting to see is what did you know when? And, and and who knew, right? I think that's the other kind of kind of big piece. Um, as as legal pieces are falling, uh, a second lawsuit has been filed. I expect, I think we all expect another one to come soon um, from Attorney Ben Crump. Um, and he said that he has been interviewing a lot of players. That's perhaps maybe another week or so out, but talking with with uh, dozens of players uh, and and past players about kind of the w- w- same questions what did you know when what did you see what happened what did you experience it's a i mean it's a it's a pretty big scandal for northwestern it's certainly one of the one of the biggest they've ever had to stomach 
and doing so with a fairly new president. I think it's also interesting that in that second lawsuit, former President Morton Shapiro is also named uh, named as a defendant in that. So, I mean, looking at those lawsuits, seeing what happens, uh, seeing what Crump files and releasing, you know, releasing that investigation that happened internally, I think that's going to really a- answer a lot of questions, but also raise a lot more questions, too. What's former head coach Pat Fitzgerald and the university saying? He immediately, Pat Fitzgerald pretty quickly went on local sports radio and just kind of, you know, denied allegations of that. Um, his attorney has uh, since then, his, all of it's gone through his attorney and and has really maintained that same kind of stance that, you know, he, he's he's said he doesn't ha- he didn't have knowledge of it, that he, you know, didn't participate in it. So. So, th- again, I think that internal investigation will be really important to see. You, you know, I got to say you you alluded to it earlier, but and obviously these are these are just allegations yeah. so far. Uh, Fitzgerald has denied it. But. It's really hard to, considering what players have come out and said, it's yeah. hard to imagine how the university thought that the only thing they needed to do was a two-week suspension. Right. Uh, like it's like it's when you compare what they initially did and what we've learned since then, uh, it's it's hard to wrap your mind around. At least for me. Well, you mentioned civil rights attorney Ben Crump, who mm-hmm. was uh, who's representing some of these former players. Let's take a listen to what he had to say on Wednesday. People broke down crying on the phone when we talked to them about how mad this made them and how they blame themselves now for not having the courage to talk. Patrick, tell us who Ben Crump is. Yeah, so Ben Crump is a very high-profile attorney. He's represented many black families who've had loved ones killed by police. That's sort of, I think, where he first got most well-known. Uh, George Floyd's family, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey. Um, and, and he's also worked, you know, I'm always kind of stunned at how busy he is. I, mm-hmm. I covered a press conference with him at Rainbow Push headquarters, I think, last year about a case that happened in downstate Illinois. I mean, he is he's a civil rights attorney who, who really focuses on abuses that especially involve racial injustice. This is Reset. I'm Natalie Moore in for Sasha Ann Simons, and we're back with more of our weekly news recap, giving you a closer look at the week's top stories across Chicago and Illinois. Before the break, we looked at the lawsuits filed by former student athletes against Northwestern University, but we've still got more news to cover. Our panel of local journalists include Amy Guth, host of Crane's Daily Gist, Alex Nitkin of Illinois Answers Project for the Better Government Association, and WBEZ criminal justice editor Patrick Smith. We're going to turn to a story that disturbed a lot of people when it first came out two weeks ago. Investigators for the Civilian Office of Police Accountability say they've not been able to identify any migrants who were allegedly sexually assaulted and impregnated by officers at police stations. Patrick, what's the latest? Yeah, so Andrea Kirsten, actually the head of COPA, she spoke with Sasha on Reset earlier this week, right after the press conference that she held uh, the day after. Uh, I thought it was interesting. She she said the initial allegation they got about the sexual misconduct uh, by an officer involving an underage migrant, uh, she said it came from a city employee, that it had specifics, and that it named a specific officer. But as you mentioned, so far, she said they haven't had any migrants come forward and say they were the victim or a victim in this, so they haven't been able to identify a victim. She did say uh, that during this investigation they have uncovered a separate allegation of sexual misconduct at a Northside police district. 
But in that case, no victim has been identified yet. They also haven't identified whatever officer may have been involved in this in this alleged incident. Are the investigations over or it was this a, a status update? This is essentially a status update. I mean, Kirsten said that she was giving the update because of unprecedented media attention on this case. I mean, there is a lot of public interest, rightfully so, on this case. Um, so, and she said the investigation is still ongoing. I'm sure that is true. I will say, and this is not based on reporting. I, they, COPA has been saying consistently the, the investigation is open. We're still looking into it. This sort of press conference feels a little bit like a, almost a warning, like, hey, we might not get anything here. Now, to be clear, that's not what they're saying to me in any way, uh, but uh, that's what it read to me based on other sort of investigations that I've covered uh, this kind of press conference would be like, hey, we we haven't been able to find a victim is is maybe a sign that there's not going to be anything out of this. But we'll see. That's just sort of my read of it. You'd have to imagine it would be a serious intimidation factor or, yeah. or a challenge to get someone to, you know, we're talking about minors in these cases, right, would feel comfortable and have the, you know, wherewithal and ability to step up and publicly say this happened to me. There are, I feel like, a thousand reasons why. Folks might be compelled to, you know, hesitate before doing that. Absolutely. I mean, you think about the experience of the migrants who are here now and what what they've been through and and done and to get to this point. I don't think it would be surprising that they would feel skeptical or completely unwilling to cooperate with an official investigation like this, which is what makes. And again, it's just an allegation. We don't we don't know that much about it, but it's what makes the you know alleged abuse of power here so disgusting. What's Mayor Johnson saying about moving the migrants out of police stations entirely? So he has vowed, you know, they moved migrants out of the West Side District where this came. There was also, I believe they moved the migrants out of the North Side District where there was this this new allegation that was uncovered. And he has said he's vowed that they are going to get all migrants out of the police stations, uh, although um, there's still still a lot of people sleeping on the floors of police stations to this day. But he has said they're going to move them all out of police stations. The city is continuing to try to find housing options for migrants. Amy, what's going on with the building in Uptown that will soon start to house them? So the city is is planning to open another temporary shelter uh, in the facility that's the American Islamic College campus uptown uh, to support continued arrival. And that was selected, according to reporting, because it's such a large space. This used to be the uh, Immaculata High School until the early 80s. It's a very large space. The college wanted to sell, was looking at options, and um, this will be supported by the Department of Family and Support Services. And there'll be a lot of, there'll be like on-site security, caseworkers support, medical services, things like that at this facility. I, I think, and this also, not, you know, not, not tied to reporting, but I just, I get the sense that we will see much more of this as we, you know, as we talk about, we're, we're in this moment where we're talking about, we're renegotiating what a lot of space means, right? We're, we're talking about what is an office building anymore and what is it for and, and what, you know, are people renting more than buying? But also suddenly we have all of these people that really need safe places to, to be, but also a lot of services around them. So I think the timing of it is really fascinating as we're talking about, uh, about space and rethinking our spaces in the city and what they could be used for, this seems like that kind of is it at the intersection of it. Alex Mayor Johnson also unveiled a new way of m- welcoming migrants that involves high school. Right. We're talking about Roberto Clemente um, High School in Humboldt Park. This was an initiative that it was announced by CPS and sort of celebrated by the mayor's office this past 
week. Um, essentially, they're converting four classrooms into a kind of welcome orientation center for a new migrant families who who would be interested in kind of transitioning into sending their kids to CPS. Um, again, it's not super significant. We're talking about one place for thousands and thousands of migrants who are, you know, in many stages of limbo at this point. But I think it is an interesting example of how the city is trying to think about different ways to, you know, some, on a kind of parallel track with the housing situation, figure out ways to um, knit these thousands and thousands of new Chicagoans into the fabric of the city and its institutions, especially as, you know, we should mention CPS has just been, um, you know, hemorrhaging enrollment for the last decade and, and more. And so certainly in the city's interest and the district's interest to be, um, you know, directing people into um, not just the school system, but all other parts of the society here. Do we have a rough number of how many school-age migrants there are? How many school-age migrants there are? Not one that I have seen or am currently aware of. I think that the the reporting that I'm looking at um, from the Sun-Times right now, um, I guess this would be from a couple days ago. This is as of Monday. There were 947 was the tally of migrants still living at police stations and awaiting a shelter bed. And then beyond that, 5,200 people living at city-run shelters, and then, um, you know, other numbers of of folks who have moved beyond the point of shelters or who have been placed in housing. Um, So we're we're just talking about this immense, um, you know, uh, swell of of migrants, of asylum seekers that the city is really struggling to just accommodate and give basic, you know, sort of um, uh, human human accommodations. But I have seen others saying, even in op-eds, like, oh, this is an opportunity for Chicago public schools. As you said, population has been declining. Here are some new families that can be, you know, embraced not only in the city, but in public schools. So it'll be curious to see first day of school what that looks like and in the coming months. Yeah, I think that there's been a lot of good reporting. I mean, from from Alden Lowry, also at WBZ, a good reporting about sort of like demographic shifts and what is causing um, or, you know, what's causing and how how the city can turn around um, the sort of declining enrollment. And it's definitely true on one level, welcoming new immigrants is one way, but it seems like the much bigger issue is um, declining birth rate, families living here, and certainly, you know, the city's policy of Demolishing tens of thousands of units of public housing probably did not help, but again, different conversation there. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Amy, the Sierra Club announced plans to sue Trump Tower. What's that about? Yeah, so Leah G. and Greco at Cranes has done some reporting on this. Um, The the Sierra Club and uh, the nonprofit Friends of the Chicago River, they have announced plans that they intend to sue the Trump organization, alleging that the tower has been uh, violating the federal Clean Water Act by the way the water is exchanged in the river. And I think that's kind of a a weird and quirky part of this that's hard to wrap your head around. But essentially, uh, part of the the building system, a lot of the high-rises there along the river take water in and then put hot water back out. But it's very regulated and it has to be uh, very well documented, things like that. So uh, the uh, the allegation is that that has not been met. It is the second time, though, that that that, that allegation has, has kind of surfaced. And there was, uh, in 2018, the Illinois Attorney General's Office also sued the Trump Organization over this discharge permit. And uh, the judge uh, 
found found against the Trump organization in that case and found that they had violated state law by pumping water into the river without a permit. So we will see how this one shakes out. And one story I was watching was uh, who Jesse Jackson Sr. was anointing as his successor. We found out that it is Reverend Frederick Douglas Haynes III, who leads a church in Dallas. He plans to stay there. Uh, but Rainbow Push, excuse me, the uh, Rainbow Push Coalition will continue to stay in Chicago. And then we had President Barack Obama, Kankakee Library. Alex, tell us about that. This is part of an uh, initiative, um, I guess, of the Obamas and of Barack Obama, former President Obama, to um, come out against these school-level book bans that we're starting to see spread to different states. We hear about them a lot in, in Florida and, and, and Texas, basically books that, um, you know, get into critical subjects like American history or, or race uh, or injustice, things like that. He appeared in a TikTok with the Kankakee Public Library um, south of Chicago. Um, Kankakee Public Library, I should say, I'm a, I'm a person who's on, on TikTok. I'm, you know, plugged into what the youth <laughs> you are doing. Um, there are a lot of public libraries with some really great TikTok accounts that have, like, fun videos, including the Kankakee Public Library. They got in on the, you know, Wes Anderson-style trend and the High Barbie, High Can trend. I was talking to, I was telling Amy before this, I was a little underwhelmed um, by the Kankakee Public Library's TikTok with President Obama, they were just sort of sitting in a circle reading banned books, you know, Ibram Kendi's Anti-Racist Baby and, and Angie Thomas' The Hate You Give, sort of sitting around reading, and then it just cut to President Obama also reading a book. Okay, so like, if you were I think cur- they're more capable. <laughs> if you were curating that TikTok video, <laughs> oh gosh. what would you have done? Yeah, get, get some art direction here. I, yeah. I, uh, I hope they're uh, listening, you know, <laughs> librarians. Well, now you have me. Um, yeah, I, there are... There are I'm sure many social media managers who are crawling all over to uh, themselves to figure out what kind of trend to catch on to. There are a lot of check out uh, public library TikTok if you haven't. There's a yeah. lot of there's a lot of good um, good stuff on there. And Obama also released his summer reading list, and Jonathan Ige's book on there, our a local author about Martin Luther King, is is on there. So that's always cool to see in his his music list as well. Uh, but before we go, this is a busy weekend in downtown Chicago. We have Sailing Race to Mackinac, Beyonce fans come into Soldier Field, uh, Pitchfork Festival in Union Park. Are you all doing any of those three things? <laughs> or if you're not, what are uh, you doing? I'm going to stop by Pitchfork. I'm excited to see Big Thief tomorrow. JPEG Mafia on Sunday should be fun. Although, uh, as we were actually talking about this morning, I'm too old to be there all day, but I'll be popping in <laughs> for the, the, the acts I really want to see. Alex? I'm going to be too busy uh, at movie theaters where it's nice and cool. And are you Barbenheimering? Barb- I am Barbenheimering, 100%. Are you going to do a double feature? I don't think we're going to be able to do a double feature. Okay. I'm going to do... Um, uh, Oppenheimer at the Music Box, 70 millimeter on Saturday night. Very excited about that. Nice. Barbie, the uh, plans are TBD, but definitely have to participate in uh, in that trend. Um, this weekend, I will be at the Chicago Jewish Book Festival. It is the inaugural event. And speaking of Jonathan Eig, he is giving the keynote on Saturday night. And also speaking of banned books, uh, tonight there is a Shabbat service that is a banned books Shabbat. And Amy Waldman from the Milwaukee Public Library will be coming down to talk all about banned books. And where is this inaugural Chicago Jewish Book Fest? It is happening at Emanuel Congregation in Edgewater, 5959 North Sheridan. And I think all the information is on Emanuel's website. Okay, that's 
uh, Amy Guth, host of Crane Chicago Business Podcast Daily Gist. And we've also been talking to WBEZ's Patrick Smith and Alex Nitkin of the Better Government Association. I'm Natalie Moore in for Sasha Ann Simons. Sasha's back on Tuesday and WBEZ's Mike Puente will have you covered on Monday. Thanks so much for listening and have a great weekend.